0: Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: Things are going great over here today. Thank you for asking. I hope all the listeners are doing fantastic. Very excited about this conversation. But first, Tim, you, Dish, how are you?
0: (laughs) I'm doing great over here, Lance. Thanks for asking. And uh, I'm excited about this conversation. We were contacted by a very professional individual named Dr. David Perlmutter. And he has a very impressive title, professor and dean, College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. What does he do in contacting us? I don't know, but that's what we spent about an hour trying to figure out.
1: I find it really cool to have these moments that are seemingly random when someone like him reaches out to us. He's got a PhD, so he is a doctor, and he insisted that we call him doctor at every opportunity in this interview. I'm just kidding. He's very humble. So circling back to your question, Tim, why is a person like this contacting us in regards to missing people, in regards to the coverage that these cases receive from the media? And how is that an interesting hour-long conversation?
0: Well, I think there's a lot of interesting ways, Lance, that we can have conversations with Dr. Perlmutter and they can be important in the work that we do. He studies media and media's response to crime. He's also written books. He wrote a book called Policing the Media. And there's another one called Blog Wars that he wrote. And we speak about them very briefly in the conversation But I think there's a lot that we can learn from him and his point of view and his approach into ethics and journalism and new mediums and how to handle new situations. But I think that's really what he likes about what we do is that we've been handling these new situations that he is teaching his students about. And I think in a lot of cases, we do things that we aren't even realizing are probably being discussed in classes like taught by Dr.
1: Perlmutter. And this was a great back and forth. It was a great conversation because not everything that we brought up, what we brought to the table, he agreed with, and you need to be challenged from time to time. And he does push back on some of these points and it makes for a better, more productive conversation on both sides because he sees where we're coming from. And, We're seeing where he's coming from and there's someplace in the middle that I think you can take something from and you can move on and try to do better in your work.
0: All right, everyone. Well, I hope you find this conversation as interesting as we do. And please refer to the links in the show notes to check out some of Dr. David Perlmutter's work and the courses that he teaches at Texas Tech.
1: Tim, I love these episodes, but I'd love them even more if they did not contain ads. What's my solution?
0: Well, it's a very simple solution, Lance. You can sign up for Missing Premium, and you can access that at missing.supportingcast.fm for the price of about a cup of coffee per month. You can get all of our episodes ad-free as well as a weekly bonus show that we do called
1: Hidden Opinions. You know what else would be cool? If we did some sort of ask us anything at some point down the line.
0: That's right. And we are trying to schedule that as we speak. So sign up
1: now. And Tim, how confident are we that people will enjoy the Missing Premium feed?
0: We are so confident that we are giving people the first month free. So if you use code missing, you can get your first month of Missing Premium for free once you sign up. Tim, where should they go to sign up? So go to missing.supportingcast.fm. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on social media at MissingCSM. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Dr. Perlmutter. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. David Perlmutter, professor and dean, College of Media and Communication, Texas Tech University. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Very happy to be here. It's really great to
1: have you here. Um, I'm sure the listeners right now are asking themselves what someone of your stature is doing on this show.
2: Uh, Well, I'm not sure I consider myself of of any stature in this uh, amazing new world and space that you all have created, which I really have only become interested in, specifically in terms of true crime creator content within the last year or so. But of course, our college is a multi-purpose college. We teach everything from journalism and public relations and advertising, which you might expect, to gaming and motion picture production and audio production. So we've got podcast labs and uh, students are producing audio content all the time. We cover a lot of ground. We just built a new gaming lab. Uh, We'll have a gaming team. We hope we'll be competing globally and teach about gaming and world building. So we're we're trying to explore new areas, and, and this is one of them. You uh, being examples of people who've created really an entire, I mean, there was always a crime genre. I mean, going back thousands of years, people have been interested in crime and mysteries, obviously, but you all have pioneered this idea of non-corporate entities. You know, this, you're, unless I'm missing it, you're not a subdivision of HBO, Max, Warner Brothers, you know, Paramount+, Plus, Disney+. Uh, you're, you're, you did this all on your own, and I think that's a great role model for our students to learn from. So I'm, I'm here to learn as well as maybe talk about some things as well based on sort of my background and some of the research I've done over the last 30 years of my career related to police, media, law enforcement. Incredible. Well, thank you so much. We
0: really appreciate that, and we appreciate you reaching out to uh, to have this conversation and uh, you've written a book called Policing the Media, Street Cops and Public Perceptions of Law Enforcement. And uh, it, it was sent to our office. I haven't retrieved it yet, but I am very excited to uh, to check this book out.
2: Yeah, uh, Tom Cruise will be pay- playing me in the movie. Uh, it <laughs> should be coming out next summer. It will be the roller coaster ride of the, the summer, I, I probably. Uh, no, a uh, long time ago. I was at uh, the University of Minnesota and I became really interested in these, the cross section of the view of police and law enforcement, because most of us thankfully don't meet police a lot. Uh, In fact, when we do meet police, it's usually when we've done something wrong, you know, traffic ticket, or it's a crisis, right? And so our perception of how police do their job what police are how cases are solved how cases proceed comes from media in the time that i was doing this in the late 90s that was mostly traditional news media i mean the, the internet existed but it wasn't a social media gathering place it was more of a electronic poster board to tack information but you got it from fiction movies you got it from books and everything so, So we we have a lot of stereotypes about how police cases are supposed to work. And over time, those stereotypes have evolved and changes. Just in the late 90s, I had uh, coroners and detectives telling me about they saw the beginning of what we now call the CSI effect, where there's a perception that any crime can be solved within 48 hours because 100 scientists will descend on the crime scene and find some miracle insight that'll nail the perp. Uh, right away. So that was the late 90s. Of course, today, we're we're well into that era. So what I did is I contacted a local police department and said, can I observe you? Uh, that that was about as sophisticated my pitch was. And uh, luckily, at the time, they were had one person squad car. So I rode along with the officers. I conducted what's called a visual ethnography. Uh, this is a border suburb of Minneapolis, a police department of about 40, 50 people. Uh, not, not an extremely high crime area, but they had murders and missing people. Uh, in fact, I remember a particular missing case where there was a search that, that I was involved in. I, I can talk about that, I guess. And I rode along and I took pictures and I used pictures to document what was going on, but also what we call photo elicitation, where you show the people that you take the pictures of, like the police officers. Hey, this is you doing this. What's going on here? And I was specifically interested in how people reacted to police officers and what they did and detectives based upon what they'd seen on TV. Uh, at that time, that was probably the news. Uh, the Rodney King incident had not been that far behind That their late 90s. And also, you know, Dirty Harry movies. And I'm old enough to remember Joseph Lombaugh books on you know, the, the Blue Knight and the New Centurions were the sort of popular police books at the time and the true crime cases, the early ones, and uh, just studying. And then the other part about it was, I also was interested in how police reacted to the public in knowledgeable about the the media stereotypes. Like often the the officers at the end of a shift would say, well, Dave, I'm sorry, we didn't have any car chase. You know, you must've been pretty boring, you know, because they, they understand that there's an expectation of action we go to an elementary school, and the first thing the kids ask is, how many people have you shot this week? And as you know, the statistics are the average police officer might not even fire their gun for dozens of years or ever in their career. So that, so that, that sort of balance between media, the people, and law enforcement was what I was interested in. And I feel true crime, every time you talk about true crime in this case or many of the other podcasts that I've heard, there's always... Continual mention of the media this, the media that. You are the media, of course. We're in an era where we have citizen media such as you. Lots to talk about.
1: Good stuff there. Uh, Super informative and uh, very telling when you're speaking about that time frame in the mid to late 90s. And you brought up Rodney King, which brings up the L.A. riots, which brings up O.J. Simpson. And Court TV hit like this stratosphere when the trial of the century was being broadcast. Do you think all of that... Gave the average citizen, the average civilian this false sense of their owed information by law enforcement if they're interested in a particular case?
2: Well, one of the many aspects of your work and I mean, now you're building, I guess, an oeuvre in the artistic sense across many media. You're kings of all media. Right. (laughs) Uh, One of the aspects I really appreciate is you try to offer the context from multiple points of view. And I think that's something that I can speak to. For example, I, I have been a journalism professor teaching political communication for 30 years. And I've I've written a lot of stuff that qualifies as, as journalism. So I feel I understand how journalists approach a story including a missing person story, a murder story. I feel I understand police procedure as well. Maybe not everyone is as is, is familiar with their points of view and how they go about doing things, you seem very sympathetic often saying like, well, we understand the police have to hold back, right? They can't just screen dump everything, every minute that they've come across. From the point of view of the family, that might be problematic. From the point of view of lawyers, that might be problematic. From the point of view of the press, that might be problematic. But of course, a journalist, especially a traditional journalist, will hold back information until they get to use it publishing a story. If it's a long form investigative story, you might have a journalist keeping information to themselves unless they feel that they have to report it to the police for months and months and months. Police, in this case, may be holding back information for 15 years, right? But they feel they have a reason, according to their protocol, why they're doing so. The public, as you said, we want to (laughs) know. And why aren't you telling us? And how come this has been held back for so long? And these are in, in this world of instantaneousness, especially social media, where the pressure is like, why didn't you tell me this five seconds ago on TikTok? Absolutely. The pressure is much greater.
1: And do you apply that same um, theory about the pressure being greater to the reporter and the need to get the scoop out there before the next person does?
2: Yeah, once upon a time when I was a younger person with uh, more patience, uh, there was something called a news cycle, which a story would break, and you think about a, a newspaper. I, you, you've maybe seen some of those older movies where somebody said, "Stop the presses!" There's some breaking news, right? And and the press goes to bed at one a.m. for morning delivery. There, there was a it was a news cycle that might be 24 to 48 hours for newspapers, would be a week for Time Magazine, might be somewhat shorter for broadcast news, but there was some time to think about information before you relayed it to the public. Today, you see, first of all, remember there are a lot fewer working journalists reporting spot news, and they are being asked to report more stories and there are fewer layers between them and publication so the copy editing proofreading editorial jobs have been severely hit in in regular journalism it's more often that off the reporter will report something and then 20 minutes later it's on the website and they're supposed to make an instagram and a tiktok across 15 media yeah are you a scoop used to be scooped by a day or a week now, it's like, oh my gosh, they they scooped us by thirteen seconds. You know, we're, how, how did that happen? Yeah, and and not to
1: uh, keep going down this particular rabbit hole, but I find it fascinating, and we don't get the opportunity to speak with someone um, of your ilk to riff on it for a while. But this idea that it's okay now, I feel like this is getting. It's escalating that it's okay now to get the scoop out there, even if it's wrong a little bit, even if there's some inaccuracies in there, because 30 seconds later, someone else is going to do it. And then 30 minutes later, you're probably going to get buried in the in the uh, like the avalanche of other scoops.
2: Uh, Yes. uh, Years ago, you may remember that there was a mine disaster. Um, I'm recalling now, I think it was Seijo Mine. And there was a terrible situation where there was quick reporting that oh the miners had been saved and then like an hour later no they actually died and what had happened was somebody had misheard somebody and a reporter decided "Eh, I'm going to go with it because I got to get it out there first and I actually wrote an article how we have to give out a Pulitzer Prize each year for people not running a story until they get the facts right. And to some extent, that's still true. The pressure is just tremendous to get it out, get it out quick. Uh, That's always been there in journalism. You know, you weren't supposed to sit on a story unless there were very, very good reasons. And as a a working journalist, you would chafe if your editor said, sit on the story. And and of course, there are always political reasons why, you know, a story might be sat upon. But now with independent media, you're not just worried about the afternoon newspaper, the other broadcast station scooping you, that you're worried about the missing podcast scooping you. You're worried about somebody's true crime TikTok scooping you. So, yes, absolutely. Now, we still teach, I promise you, if you take introduction to journalism here, we still say, don't report anything until you're reasonably sure it's correct, it's factual. Now, we have to talk about timetable, and moran Murray is actually a very good example about that. Uh, You know, you have historians today who are still trying to explain the causes of the U.S. Civil War. Right. So the, the timetable of historians is, yeah, I'm, you know, 130 years publishing after the story, but that's that's fine. Right. For a journalist, it might be a day. For a TikToker, it might be an hour. So there's different timetables. The police. This story is still being this. We're still arguing over facts. I mean, I, I, the more I listen to, the more I get confused. <laughs> I I I don't know a lot of things I used to know. The first the first hundred hours of listening about Maura Murray, I knew more than the second hundred hours. And that's not your fault because you 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 and you're doing a great job of saying, "Hey, we said this thirty podcasts ago, but now we're not so sure." And it's going in a different direction, which I think is exactly what we journalists and if everyone should be doing. And you're a role model for that.
0: Well, thanks a lot. I'm uncomfortable with uh, compliments. Um, one, one thing we um, we always <laughs> we always said on the show was that um, you know we're we're not journalists, so we're not we're not trying to scoop anybody with um, the information we put out. So I think um, not coming from a journalism background sort of uh, insulated us a little bit from trying to get a scoop out. I would say.
2: I mean, again, this is probably why we live in an era of incredible density and richness of information and incredible richness and density of misinformation right is it is that uh, but it's up to us as consumers of information to sort of listen to to different podcasts different uh, reddits i mean to get more and make our own decisions and you all again something you always do you don't ever say like we are the one source of all knowledge on this case you you encourage people to go to other sources. You do something which I think is uh, shocking that, that I personally would find very difficult to do is that you react to people being toxic and attacking you by saying, hey, let's talk about it and inviting them to come talk to you, uh, which is a very, very noble thing to do, especially in this era of uh, very politicized everything. And again, I applaud. I, I think that's the last thing I'm going to applaud you on. After <laughs> after this, I'll I'll say all negative yeah. things. It's really okay, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but that's really important, right? Is that is that if if anybody's telling you they're the one source of all truth, aside from matters of religion, I think that's problematic, and you probably shouldn't listen to that person.
1: To your point about us inviting people on the show who have an opposing position or an opposing uh, opinion on anything. It's really because the core reason we decided to do a show on A Missing Person was essentially due to the community that was looking into Maura Murray's disappearance. And we were always fascinated with that community, the passion that they had. So whenever something like that comes up and there's somebody with a very passionate uh, opinion, someone who's very outspoken. Yeah. Like that's sort of the core belief of what we started with in the first place. It's since evolved into something bigger and we've expanded that to other missing persons. But I think essentially we just gravitate sometimes back to our core, which is these are amazing individuals looking into A particular cold case that they're very passionate about let's get on let's talk about it and and get a glimpse into their outlook and their approach because you never know someone else could be out there doing it in a different way not as successfully and if they just heard this one person say one thing it could change their minds and it could actually make something i don't know productive happen if they were to change their methods based on what they hear
2: yes absolutely and I had sent you a document and I don't if you feel free if you want to use it, but I just out of interest, we took a look at the first couple of weeks of local and regional newspaper coverage of the Moore Murray case. And I thought it was interesting how it illustrated some of the points that you've made previously in other podcasts, but also when we're talking about media coverage. And I don't know if you want to move to that at, at some point, but again, if you want to make that available, the document, what our my my team here did is we we basically highlighted every time somebody, police, family, uh, other community members, commenters, somebody said, "Well, this is what Mora Murray was doing," or speculated, and you you see, and if if I can go into it for just one minute, I don't mean to divert our our topic, but like just I'm looking at the Boston Globe on February 14th, 2004. So really close to the initial disappearance. And you already see the phenomena that we see today, all these years later, of different narratives rising up. Uh, Different narratives of her motivations, different narratives of her actions. And then third, and I think they should be split up into one, two, three different narratives of then what happened, because those could be three different things. I mean, I'm not gonna, by the way, what I'll do, because I don't consider myself in any way an expert in this, I'm not gonna mention anybody's actual name. So I'll say the family or the police, but you can already see like, for example, a. I'm just I'm just reading here. Um, this is a police chief being quoted saying, we are concerned for her personal welfare there is no evidence of foul play the police said our concern is that she's upset or suicidal something the family was concerned about then a relative is um, quoted the the father is quoted this is very unusual it's not like her to just take off which you know, sort of sinks a little bit with at least that particular police one, but it but, but is different in some way. And then we have down here uh, someone else uh, associated with her saying she's extremely responsible, frugal. Uh, she just wanted to get away and get her head straight. We have no reason to believe she was running away. So you can see there's already divergence, like only a couple of days into the disappearance, there's multiple narratives emerging. And, and this is what happens all the time, because in, in my career, most of my work has been about breaking new famous news stories and how they emerged from being a news story to a historical event. And there's a famous observation by Philip Graham, who was the publisher of the, of the Washington Post, excuse me. And he said, journalism is the first draft of history. And in my work, and I've studied the first draft of history all over the world like in war and crime and other things. And the first draft is always wrong. Because especially with a big breaking news event, 9-11, a school shooting, the, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, things are happening so quickly. Different people are saying different things. They're speculating that a lot of what we initially know turns out to be wrong. But these initial narratives, like narratives one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, which you've all documented emerge and they get hardened. You can see the police narrative and not, later on. You see a particular police officer who fast forward, just gave a press conference about a search that was done recently. Again, I'm not naming names, but it's interesting that he seemed to have held the same narrative for now, this entire time about what happened and but then we have to ask, what does he know that we don't know, right? Because he may have some evidence that he can't share or won't won't share. We just don't know. But I think that's really interesting to look at the first days of a case and see how immediately you have these conflicts uh, and cascade of narratives.
1: Yeah, this is uh, totally speaking my language here, because when we started doing this, it was always super interesting to go back to the very earliest newspaper articles and see what the statements were from family and law enforcement and how someone even would describe how the car accident happened and you know the early police documents the early uh, police reports the 911 transcripts and and all of that because even though a lot of that stuff is probably... I don't know, misinterpreted. There's some human error there. It's just really fascinating to get a glimpse into into that time period. It's like a little time capsule. And you had mentioned how the relationship or the narrative started to grow and and um, harden. And then it, I think you said cascaded into what it is today. You can You can also see that in these articles, how the relationship between the family and law enforcement started to deteriorate. Real early on, by a family member saying uh, the search is slowly grinding to a halt. We should we should think of it in terms of a criminal investigation. It sounds like it would be the key to expanding it. Let's grab the bull by the horns and call it foul play. That was one of the highlights that you had. Uh, that's one of the highlights that you had done on this article that was dated February twenty second. So on February twenty second, just. Oh, two and a half weeks or so from the disappearance, already family members are saying, hey, law enforcement, you're not doing it right. We got to do it like this. Let's let's literally grab the bull by the horns and get this done. So interesting that you bring that up, that these relationships are developing.
2: Right. And, and the other part about it, and when I say cascade, is is this is often the case, right? So there are multiple mysteries here. There's like what was she intending to do when she left Amherst what was her plan if there was a plan right now that's even mysterious was there a plan right then what happened along the way I mean I guess you could say go back and say what happened before that because of course these these questions was there another accident was there some incident before she left so so there's mystery one mystery two Then she's on the road, mystery three, what happened on the road. And then there's mystery four, what happened after the road, because they could all be completely divergent, right? It's it's one something happened and then she reacted to it and then she had a plan. And then she met a stranger who there was there was foul play. They they don't necessarily we tend to think and you've made this point. You had the great prosecutors podcast people on. They're very good for giving the lawyer's point of view of stuff. And they talked about how the narratives don't have to sequence like in a real fictional story, like in a real fictional story. If we had chapter uh, a three act play and the three acts had no connection to each other, we'd sort of like, wait a minute, that's bad storytelling. Right. But that's life. So it's, it's possible that all four acts of the Maura Murray story have no connection to each other. And that's one of the things that's making it more mysterious. And it's hard to cover that in journalism, and as police, and it's, it must be torturer as a family as well. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program.
1: Yeah, and it was a great point saying that if you're watching it as like a fictional narrative, and things aren't clicking, and and you know the 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 gun on the shelf isn't used in the in the third act or the fourth act, then it's bad storytelling, but how do you tell this story without driving people to your publication if you're going to present it as real life? You know what I'm saying? Like where's the line between the journalist making sure that all eyes and ears are on this as much as they can, as best they can. But in a way they have to make it into something that is consumable that people are used to. And, You know, no one wants to watch a movie that has like a real life ending. It's boring. You know.
2: Well, I'm not completely sure about boring. There's certainly exciting stories in real life. It's just often people to get to the exciting part and during the exciting part they don't do things which would make sense if you were watching Tom Cruise do them. They have that's why a lot of based on a true story movies or you know this is based on reality or whatever have to be rewritten. For the audience to accept them because we we go like that. No, I can't believe that that that's what that person did. And you see this on Reddit world (laughs) all the time (laughs) is thousands of people saying some version of like, I can't believe that a mother would do that. I can't believe that a friend would do that. I can't believe that anybody would do that. When Of course, we know human beings do strange and odd things all the time. They're just not murdered or missing an hour later. For it to become part of a, a story, right? Yeah, and the, the
0: way you described um, several mysteries in Morris's case leading up to her disappearance, um, it just sounds like it's kind of like a. Do you feel like it makes a perfect storm for tension between law enforcement
2: and family and media? Well, you you both have really struck home when you said that the, to some extent you could argue this was the first big case of the social media era and in fact i years ago one of the books that i wrote and, and it got me my my seven minutes of fame of being on john stewart's daily show i wrote a book called blog wars which was about the rise of what was then the, the new social media pioneering form the blog especially political blogs and the use in political campaigns especially the howard dean new england uh for President campaign in two thousand three, two thousand four, and then the Obama campaign really perfected the use of then relatively new social media art forms. Well, this was the first case that really came of age during that. Now, of course, we have hundreds of cases through Gabby Petito today. I'm old enough to remember, you know, John Benet Ramsey, and I, you still go at, as several of your guests have mentioned. You know, you still go to the supermarket, and there's John Benet Ramsey still on the cover of a, of a tabloid. So the saturation sort of gets in the way of sifting the information. I mean, before our problem was not enough information. Now our problem is too much information and too much commentary confusing the information. Right,
0: so time and uh, I guess new mediums have really changed um, everything in the way crime cases are covered, but even more Murray's case due to podcasts. uh, You mentioned TikTok.
2: I guess the other issue let's talking about from the point of view of the family. So there are different cases, but let's just interpose for a second, Ramsey, Maury, Maury family, I'm not naming names, but just like two two wildly different families, right? We have one family that's extremely wealthy, uh, extremely politically and socially and culturally. And I assume also journalistically and legally connected actually was connected very well with, with law enforcement. in in the Ramsey family, Uh, they hire lawyers, they hire publicists, they hire detectives. They have all the resources available to them to work with law enforcement and the media. That, That doesn't mean that immediately there's not extreme tension to this day between Ramsey and some elements of the police and law enforcement, but they have all the resources. You have identified, and I think another great thing about your work is you have identified that most families in these situations, have no cultural or financial or connections or resources on what to do. There's no playbook of what to do. I mean, if somebody were to call me, I would give them some advice about what they should do. But there's not an easy instance of like, what if if your child goes missing, what should be Your strategy for the media? What should be your strategy for working with the police, especially if you start getting frustrated that they're not doing what you want them to do?
1: Right, because not every family has a PR person instructing them on the next move and don't use these words, use these words and how to manipulate the viewers watching that particular news program to uh, put pressure on law enforcement. So, yeah, what do you do? You Other than go to the police. Your child is missing, you go to the police, and then you're sort of at their mercy.
2: And then the journalist is knocking at your door, and you're getting calls from an independent podcaster. You're getting calls from somebody who you know, found your address on Reddit. I mean, that, it's more, even more complicated today than it was in 2004. Yeah, that's
1: really interesting. So if you're getting calls from two people who started a podcast and they want to get the information out there about your missing uh, son or daughter, there are no rules for that either, like on that end. Like on our end, th- you there's, there's no handbook that's been written that gives you the ethics of doing something like this. So you have to go with what you've already learned in life as just basic, common, ethical behavior and, and what you think you might know or just like what you want to do as like a respectful human being. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen though in in this particular field.
2: Right. Well, there is a playbook if you're a corporation or you're in the government or you're wealthy. Yeah. Right? Because you can hire there we have graduates of our school who specialize in, in crisis communication. Uh, we we certainly have people who are in corporate uh, PR and, and and branding and there there are lots of professional rules and big binders and and data on what they will tell you to do in situations. But if you are Mr. and Mrs. America, an old fashioned phrase, and this just happens to you, you don't have those resources available to you. So taking this case as an example, it's, it's perfectly normal that, especially in an extended family, you might have some differences of, of opinion, right? So as far as I can tell, there is not a unified family line on every aspect of this case. Whereas in the case in Boulder, Colorado, very early on, it was decided that there was going to be a series of talking points. And this is our official position on everything that anybody would would ask us. And they've been absolutely consistent in every interview that has been done over time on those points when they've had normal control so that that's an example of of a controlled situation versus the uncontrolled situation of the ordinary person caught up in something like this
0: and um as a as a professor in your in your position um how do you teach about the changing mediums like podcasting and really tiktok has kind of uh taken taken over to some degree
2: well, one of the pitches we have for majoring with us is that we have the only major where you can be a, an expert at age 21, because obviously we, we're going through these immense revolutions. I, I mentioned we're, we've built a whole gaming curriculum and a gaming lab and gaming so, uh, spaces, because as you may know, gaming is actually the largest largest media industry now in terms of, of revenue and, and size. And there's millions of people who work in the world of gaming. So- we work very hard and spend a lot of money to try to keep up. And we have wonderful alumni that we bring back. We have a lot of our faculty have considerable professional experience and stay in touch with the professional world. And we've got 2,500 students who keep us on our toes. I mean, I just taught a class this summer, which was the the introductory class of our field, introduction to media and communication, just sort of one, two, three, Here's here's the basics of the fundamentals of our world. I had taught that class from 1995 to 2005 at another university. Trust me, the syllabus was very different. <laughs> the curriculum was very different, and uh, so we're we're under pressure, but we like it because everything is new. One of the reasons I've reached out to you is because I find what you're doing fascinating, and I want to, this podcast will now be assigned curriculum <laughs> for our classes because I want our students to think about these questions. And going back to ethics, that's really important because at least at the college level, we feel as part of our duty is not just to produce great employees and workers and creators, but ethical employees, creators and workers and good citizens of the Republic. Again, an old fashioned phrase, but I apologize, I'm an old guy. Uh, And the ethics are very important. And let's just take this case as an example. And I wanna sort of put a thought experiment out there um suppose you were the police department and uh you were contacted by somebody who's missing and said yeah i ran away i wanted to get away from my life and my family i have no interest in being found i'm an adult i'm not saying that's what happened here although some things that some un- authorities have said I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't say they hinted that, but like, that's interesting, right? That's, that's an interesting thought there. So what would you do if you were a journalist and you found a missing person that had been missing for 12, 14 years, and they were living a new life in Quebec or Jakarta. And they said, I have no interest in being found. I wanted to get away from everything. I wanted to start over. We know people do that all the time. That's not a crazy thing. I mean, it, it may be crazy to other people, but for the many people do that. If you're a police officer, if you're a journalist, if you're a podcaster, if you received a call tomorrow that you confirmed was from Maura Murray and said, I I just wanted to get away, I'm living my life here now, I don't want to be bothered, in each one of those roles, what would you do?
1: It is a fantastic thought experiment, and... I have no idea what we would do as like law enforcement because I don't know what the obligation is of law enforcement to whether they need to contact the family or not to tell them, you know, we're not going to tell you where, but we know that we've, we know for sure that she's made contact with us and we can't tell you where because she's an adult and she doesn't want people to know and we're, we're sorry. So I don't know like if that's what they have to do as a podcaster. If we got the call, I'd be absolutely thrilled. Uh, And seeing as at this point right now, we've moved into covering other missing persons and working with our nonprofit, I don't think it would be that much of a blow to our day-to-day operation to know this and continue our work. Um, Definitely wouldn't say anything. Uh, But at the same time, and this is a fun thing about thought experiments is that you can talk them out in real time. At the same time if you know something like this and you continue to see damage that is potentially being done to the family and you have the answer you might want to probably reach out to the family I think.
0: Yeah, my my answer would be, you know, I, that definitely has to be sent to to law enforcement and the family. It's really not our responsibility. Um well, I I, I mean you could argue we're media that is our responsibility too, but um, we definitely try to take a uh, gentler approach. And especially with anything case information wise, if we ever get an email that speaks knowingly about the case in any way, that gets sent immediately to the police or the family, which is, uh, both have happened. Um, and that situation has occurred in the past couple of years in our work with private investigations for the missing. And, uh, unfortunately we haven't really been able to talk about it at all because, you know, to your point, these, uh, the, those people, they, they don't want their names out there. They don't want people looking for them. Um, so doing an episode about a missing person who doesn't want to be found, um, not really something we would do when we know it was against that person's wishes.
2: From the journalistic point of view, I, I'm not saying there's an answer. I think that's what's great about thought experiment, which is it, the answer might be different. I don't know. In, in this case. You tell me, has it ever been proven that a crime has occurred? no. So you have to ask yourself, would the police department have a responsibility if a citizen just said, look, you're not suspecting me of a crime. I haven't done anything wrong. I have the right to privacy, which is a constitutionally guaranteed right. So thanks, but you know, stop looking for me and don't mention that you, you know. a journalist might say, might argue that this would be an argument that some journalists would make, like working for A newspaper or magazine a broadcast station is that you have now become a public figure it's like does president biden have a right to privacy you know does does uh uh elon musk have a right to privacy does does a hollywood star have a right to privacy we've seen the i can't i will not admit that i've actually purchased it but you know i've been at the supermarket and i've seen these stars who are going for their garbage with their makeup off and sweatshirts uh sweatsuits photos right and somebody on a public street had the right to take a picture of poor you know brad pitt going to go put his garbage in the garbage can and probably can't sue for privacy because that picture was taken on a public street of somebody of a public figure right so a journalist might make that argument to their editor and to the public saying, like, and and to somebody calling them saying, hey, I don't think I can give you privacy because you're a public figure now that you've been one because of, of this case. And another journalist might say, okay, I will respect that. But could you, could you at least let me interview you? I won't say where you are, who you are, whatever, I will protect you. But can you give me the story? So there's multiple answers there, depending on what your inclinations are, even within the profession of journalism. And I would assume police, too.
1: I think uh, that's fair. And I think if that ever happened to us, I think we would probably want to get that interview and protect the uh, location of the person. I think that's fair to say that um, it would be probably one of the more responsible things we could do if we were to get it out there And sort of put a button in it without revealing anything detrimental to the individual. Yeah. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I noticed here in in the document that you sent, I thought it was interesting at the point where the search kind of starts mentioning Vermont, Mm -hmm. And uh, and how that that is being looked at as a possibility. Seems like it wasn't until the 21st of February 2004 that that started.
2: Yeah. Burlington as a destination. Uh, There's also the discussion of the apartment very early. And you can see, I believe that at least some of the police and some associated with the family made an early conclusion that she was packing up to leave. Like this was a purposive exit there. Uh again, I mean that's it's interesting to me that I guess that still hasn't been resolved. I, I heard one of your I mean, I more recent for me, but you may have recorded it six months ago, but you were talking to somebody about how we don't have the picture of the bed in the dorm room. And police are either that was never taken or they're holding it back for reasons of their, their own. so just something like that simple, not being resolved after all these years is amazing process, fascinating, but you could see early speculation about all of those things.
1: Just looking back at these old articles again and seeing what you've highlighted, I had to look up a word that I thought I knew, and it turns out I did know it. And I I don't know if like I really even saw it previously because it wasn't highlighted but one of the people that is or was close with Mora described her as being frugal. Yes. And I and I had to look up to make sure I knew that frugal meant what I thought it meant which is and I'm reading the definition sparing or economical with regard to money or food and i don't know if this person just misspoke but i always find it fascinating to go back and see these quotes in the moment when someone is in front of a reporter giving a statement and in the sentence the person says this is this isn't like her she's a very responsible a smart frugal individual frugal just is a very strange word for me to swallow if,
2: if i'm reading that correctly that's the mother of the boyfriend Oh, you're, all right. you're right. You're right. It says she, speaking. She's extremely responsible and extremely frugal girl. And at least, you know, some some of these things are hard to read. But it says the boyfriend's mother who flew in with her husband. So this is the mother of the boyfriend speaking. So again, that that's interesting because you know you, you're your 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 mother-in-law or your boyfriend-in-law or whatever you want to describe it, evaluation of your character. That's part of the mix now, too. But that that was interesting that 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 and then the other question, and this came up in your discussion with the prosecutors, and I'd love you to talk about it, is is this question. Maybe I'm missing it, but I did not see a lot of quotes from other people. At the Military Academy and at Amherst. Who knew her. That was a discussion you've had before.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. We've often said. It's amazing how much information is out there about the disappearance and the family, the boyfriend side. But very rarely is there somebody who will say, I don't know if we've ever had anybody say, I was really good friends with her and I'd love to talk.
2: Do you see a connection to the word frugal there?
1: Oh, maybe she was. Yeah, I see what you're saying.
2: Yeah, I would I would suggest
0: um, it might have had something to do with the money that they believe she had or or knew that Maura had. Um, and maybe it's sort of a limiting word in where that person who spoke it could have believed Maura would have ended up. Does that make sense?
2: I thought that she was using the word, again, this is the boyfriend's mother, and we're trying to create something. Somebody said many decades ago that I thought she was— imp- using it as the word private like like focused like not you know all over the place and and there so i just i i I didn't think she was misusing the word but she was using a a variation of the implication of the word frugal
1: yeah i i I get what you're saying when you brought up about people who knew her at the academy or at um, UMass and the connection between the word and, and maybe how she lived her life there. And maybe that's why we haven't heard from
2: people. And with journalistic protocol, part of writing a story about somebody who's missing or murdered is reaction shots or reaction quotes. I mean, that's actually within Journalism 101. Don't just get like the official statement. Like if a, if a student at a university, something happens to them, Journalists are not supposed to just get the official press release from the president's office, which was here, by the way, in one of the stories you saw that. But like, what did her classmates think about this? What did her dorm mates think about this? That would that would have been part of the journalistic protocol. So one thing, if somebody wanted to do this, who had some time and energy, is have you gone back and talked to the journalists who covered the story in the first couple of days? Because I'd like to ask them the question, did you try to get reaction quotes from dorm mates, fellow workers, other students, and nobody gave them to you? I know there's the whole question about the party and everything like that. But again, it's part of the, I felt missing from these stories that if I were the journalist covering this story in the first couple of weeks, are reaction quotes, and an editor would have asked for those reaction quotes, and a journalist would have known to try to get them.
0: Right. Um, we have gone back and contacted some of the writers, some of the authors of these articles wi- without much success. I believe the one that, that did send us her notes, uh, I think her name is Vanessa Gregoriadis. She wrote the Seventeen magazine article, and she sent us her notes, but she didn't actually remember um, like really working on it, but she did have her notebook after so many years.
2: So I think that's where it's useful to talk about protocol, right? Police protocol. And what I saw in my study of police when I was just standing there right next to police officers when they were encountering the public and somebody's house has been robbed, you know, somebody's been in a car accident, somebody's accused of something, is that people would often have expectations of what police procedure are, which didn't match what actual police procedure was. And I've listened, again, I'm, I'm the least expert here you're ever gonna have on true crime and missing on this podcast, but listening to some of the other cases, like the, um, the Yuba County Five, these five young men who disappear, four of their bodies are found later in very odd, mysterious circumstances, and one is still missing. And the family says, you know, you're not searching enough. And the person who did that podcast, it, it was a very good podcast, was talking about, like, yeah, well, how, how, what, what is an effective search? Because if you're searching woods and mountains and a search area, right? What is a complete search? At what point would you say, search completed, we've searched everything possible. Because you know that there have been missing cases where they've searched an area very thoroughly and like a year later, a body is found where like 50 search and rescue people walked by because somebody's yeah. in some little crevasse or under a tree or what whatever. So I, I'm not saying I'm, the family's wrong and I'm not saying the police is right, but I think it's a good question to ask like, what is a search? What is a thorough search? How how would we define a completely thorough search? I was amazed, I understand legally, that like, oh, well, we couldn't search certain areas because it was private property. I mean, again, legally, that's correct. That sort of ma- makes it hard, doesn't it, <laughs> to do a thorough search? But that's another case where where we, the public and the police, are in different situations.
1: And what do you think the relationship should be or will end up developing into if anything, between this new media, this podcasting, and law enforcement. Do you think that law enforcement will see it as a tool? Um, Because we've worked with police departments like Saratoga Springs in New York who welcomed us in and said, here's a case file, and worked with us on this unsolved murder in their city because they wanted the publicity out there in this new media format. Uh, But then there's others, of course, that don't want any part of it. Do you see there being some common ground?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. So I want to just go back in time to when I started my work. I showed up at roll call the first time, and the person that I contacted was the captain of the police force. There's about 40 to 50 officers in the suburban police department. I I show up at roll call, and basically the captain says, this is Dave, and he's a, a PhD student at the local university, and he wants to do a study from us about us. And you could see the officers were not going, hey, great. A journalism student is going to ride next to me in the car. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, there, there was a, There was a real trust issue. And I felt that I worked hard First of all, I showed up uh, second of all, because of my schedule, the only shift that I could do was the dog shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So I think that sort of impressed him a little bit that I was willing to show up you know. that and then showing up week after week, shift after shift. I remember there was a, one police officer who was sort of a friendly guy and and he took me on from the very beginning. I tell this story with a little bit more salty language in my book about how at one roll call, like a month in, I forgot the amount of time, he got up and turned to all the other officers and said, well, I, I just want you to know that Dave, even though he's a journalism student, is not a bleep. Yeah, it seems like he's an okay guy. I think you can talk to him. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, but that did tell you that they had suspicions based upon their experience in their professions about journalists. And there's, there's always been, so 1997, there wasn't the greatest relationship between police and, and journalists. I think today, and I have an example of that just a couple of weeks ago, one of our other great professors and I presented at the Texas Sheriff's Association. And that was a, so we spoke to an audience of 200 sheriffs from counties around Texas. And we talked about this very topic. And I was saying, I feel that you can't wait for a crisis to develop a good relationship, not only with the regular media, the industrial media, as we like to call it, the the newspapers and broadcast stations. You should also reach out to people who are creating independent content creators and build a relationship with them. So there's a relationship of trust. So when there is a crisis, you can work with them. And I, I think that's good advice. And I think a lot of, um, newer, younger uh, sheriffs and police are are realizing that th- the press should not be the enemy. The independent creator should not be the enemy. They might have different agendas and you might end up saying things that they don't like, but it shouldn't be forever an antagonistic relationship. So I think all over the country you see here and there, it's not a purposive big policy. You see some sheriffs police departments being much more uh social media friendly even creating i mean you can go on tiktok and enter police tiktok and you see thousands of individual police officers and sheriffs deputies and sheriffs who are creating their own contact uh content i see police podcasts too from the point of view of police yeah absolutely and uh and that's
0: been pretty interesting to see
2: um is
0: could that be a, a complete picture though
2: you know, there's never a complete picture, right? As I, as I said, um, do we have a complete picture of the fall of the Roman Empire? <laughs> I mean, we're still working on it, right? Uh, there are still new books published about famous salt crime cases, right? So I, I think going back to things you've said before and also here, we can never have a complete picture, but if you want to get more pixelation you want to get more granular and, and detailed you want to get 8k instead of you know vhs <laughs> you just have to keep getting more sources of information to build a picture but i don't think you can ever get 100 you should never trust everything a journalist says you should never trust everything th- the sheriff says you should never trust everything a podcaster says you can b- you can trust people uh hang on but- blasphemy what you can tr- I can- I trust I trust I think you've built up over your 140 plus episodes that you're you're trying to be factual. You 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 care about. It. I mean maybe I've read you wrong. I don't know you. This is the first time you.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's yeah, probably the best thing you could say. Yeah.
2: And I think a good journalist, a good newspaper, a, a good podcaster, a good sheriff will build up a reputation that they're trying to be truthful within the limitations of their world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We um, spoke with some wonderful individuals, three ladies, who um, are really trying to push this ethics and standards when uh, podcasting these true crime stories. And one of them, she's a lawyer and a writer and a podcaster, incredibly intelligent. She said something that was essentially, hey, if you don't come from a profession that already has some standards and ethics in place, then just make it your first stepping stone, your doorway. The first thing you should do is approach these cases with the sense that you're going to do no harm. And I thought that was really cool that if you don't know exactly what to do and how to approach um, ethics in this, just resort back to that at first and grow from there. Just resort back to do no harm go into it and try to do no harm. And then things will essentially fall in line after that.
2: I I guess I slightly disagree, or maybe, again, it's a point of view thing, because journalists, uh, again, you were interviewing the the prosecutors, and I think Blake from the prosecutors said, good journalists are jerks. (laughs) Uh, I I don't completely agree, but the point is um, lawyers often do things which as the general public, we go, that's a poly, that a lawyer would do that. Jour- uh, journalists will do things that cause harm. I mean, printing the truth can cause harm. Uh, so it depends on like who's harm, who's being harmed, to what extent, what's balanced out by the public's right to know in a, in a republic, in a democracy with with freedom of press. So, so I would say, I'd like to put some asterisks there about Yeah, but when people do their job, they may cause harm. I mean, a a doctor may have to amputate your leg because you'll die if you don't get amputated because you've been frozen in the snow or something like that. So a doctor is causing harm, but to save your life. A journalist might make the same argument. A prosecutor, a defense attorney, a, a podcaster may make the same argument. So I'm not disagreeing but there are cases where we cause harm.
1: Yeah, no, this is exactly why I'm nodding on about the like your answer because this is the conversation that we need to have, is if your starting point is do no harm, then your next point, which you just made, is I understand that, but I also have to understand that if I'm doing my job, there might be harm caused to somebody if it means that I'm going to get the truth out there. And the truth is important. So it's a great next step. It it doesn't feel like the next step, but it's the gr- it's a great next bullet point or line item if you're coming up with your list of ethics and standards for doing this when you don't come from a occupation that You know, has provided some for you, and you're not used to that, or you're not trained in that.
2: Yeah, and I think that's now that podcast. I don't know whether podcasting has reached a stage of maturity yet, because you're still so young as an idea and as a concept as an execution. But I think those kind of conversations are fantastic to have, and especially with the public. I think I think it's impressive that you're having those conversations, because again, I think a lot of people do enter it without thinking about what they're doing and one of the reasons i reached out to you is i felt that you guys were being thoughtful about your practice not just doing it
1: i don't know about matured you use that word matured (laughs) i have i have blue hair so that is already a strike (laughs) against me but that's a zoom trick
0: (laughs) (laughs) well david this has been a great conversation i feel like we could uh, un- uncover more layers of this onion in uh, in more conversations.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity. And again, I think it's going to be great for me to show this to our students. And I- I'm looking forward to the conversations I have with them because, of course, they're going to be the next generation of people who are going to be doing what you do, as well as working for corporations, as well as working at the newspaper and all the, the the different things because these ethical issues especially they apply to all media not just covering very difficult tragic cases i think there's there's ethical issues in gaming there's ethical issues in, in branding toothpaste so there's lots to talk about and i i appreciate the time and thank you